Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Nowadays podcast. I'm your host, James Leno, joined by my co-host. Hi, everyone. Timmy. Timmy Lang. Yeah, and uh, this week is a, a very special guest. Uh, we have Dr. Gabor Mate, whom a lot of you would have heard of. Um, for those of you that might not be familiar with Gabor, he's a Hungarian-born Canadian physician who has a history in family practice, but is world-renowned specialist in uh, childhood development and trauma, and how that links to um, mental health issues and physical health issues. So does, I could have went the long way around the introduction, but in a nutshell, that's who you are. So look, thanks for uh, coming to speak with us today, Gabor. Well, thanks again. Uh, uh, pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's an honor for us. Um, let's drive on. So, so for like myself and Timmy would be so familiar with some of your concepts, but for those who may haven't gone through university or may, um, may haven't been, have, have the, the privilege of reading your books and going to the conferences, can you explain to us what trauma is and how trauma is connected to addiction? Sure. So, in all my years in family practice, and also in addiction medicine, I found that many chronic physical illnesses, virtually everything that we call mental illness and certainly addictions are related to childhood trauma. Now, what is trauma? <clears throat> trauma is the, the, the source of the word trauma itself comes from the word Greek for a wound. So trauma is a wound that you sustained. So people often think of trauma as being abused or physically or sexually or emotionally, um, violence in the family, and so on. And those events are traumatic, but the trauma itself is the wound that the person sustains. And so now, if you want to jump right to addiction, let, let me give you a definition of addiction, and then you and those of you who are listening can each th see how that definition might apply to uh, yourself. Yeah. So an addiction can be defined as manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in, and therefore we crave it, but then we suffer long-term negative consequences, and we can't give it up despite the negative consequence. So craving pleasure relief in the short term, negative effects in the long term, inability to give it up. That's what an addiction is. So notice that my definition said nothing about drugs. Usually when we think about addictions, we think in terms of substances, which is fair enough, mm -hmm. often they are, alcohol, nicotine, heroin, crystal meth, cocaine, whatever. 
However, people can also be addicted to sex, to gambling, to eating, to shopping, to self-cutting, to bulimia, to gambling, to pornography, to a whole range of human behaviors. Now, I know you guys have both identified yourself as being in recovery from an addiction. Without even me asking you, each of you, Timmy or Tony, what you're addicted to, although you're free to tell us if you want to, what I'm really asking is, what did it do for you in the short term? What did you like about it? That's the first question. So uh, those of you who are listening, just ask yourself the same question. Not what was wrong with the addiction, what was right about it? What did you, in the short term, what did it give you? So what would you guys say about that? Um, Gwen, if Timmy wants to go first, but I'm James. Tony was here, but he's gone. Um, but just sorry, sorry. Ignore James, yeah, James Leonard. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. For me, addiction gave me a sense of um, belonging. Okay. Uh, it gave me comfort. It gave me confidence, self-esteem. Um, you know, all of those things, it gave me things that I didn't have in my normal living, you know, particularly the self-esteem and the confidence, you know, to be able to talk to people. But um, as you spoke about there also, like in the long term, this addiction destroyed me. My addiction was well, well, alcohol. Not, yeah, so let's not go there. Let's just stay with yeah. your answer. And okay. uh, uh, James, what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why? I, what was addiction for me? Why I use drugs? When I, before I used drugs, I would have a lot of uh, fear and anxiety. I didn't understand where I come from. You know, I was a teenager, uh, insecurity, self-esteem. Mm. And when I started using substances, it didn't really matter what individual substance was it relieved me of all that insecurity and fear and anxiety so that was kind of i always ran with the drug it didn't matter what the drug was after that very good all right so let's take what you guys have said uh, confidence comfort sense of belonging self-esteem relief of anxiety um relief of insecurity a sense of security are those good things or bad things in themselves they were, they, well, they were good things because they worked at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're wonderful things. These are things we all human beings want. Now, that means that the addiction, it's nonsense to talk about addiction as a disease because what kind of a disease gives you security and uh, comfort and self-esteem and belonging? It's also ridiculous to talk about it as a choice because who chooses to be insecure and anxious and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and isolated and, and uh, emotionally right up? So these are all states of emotional pain. And addiction soothes the pain. So that's my mantra under addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Now, why the pain? You just told me about your childhoods. You told me that as you were growing up uh, in your family of origins, things happened to you that robbed you of security, that robbed you of genuine self-esteem, that robbed you of um, comfort, that robbed you of your God-given right to belong to the human race, uh, that robbed you of uh, confidence. So that's the trauma. The trauma is the loss of all these good qualities that every child should have. And so they're the traumatic events, but the trauma then is the wound that we sustain, that we then keep trying to soothe all our lives. And addictions really are a way of soothing the pain induced by early trauma. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I was around 17, 18, I had a suicide attempt. 
And mm-hmm. after that, I found benzodiazepines. And even though I was, uh, my life was destroyed on benzodiazepines and I was <coughs> going in and out of prison and hospitals, I wasn't trying to kill myself, you know. So in a kind of a paradoxical way, they helped me de- get over that part of my life where I was suicidal. Then the drugs helped me through it, even though I was you know, in and out of prison. But it got me through that point in my life. Mm. There's a lot of people who are driven to the point of despair. And as one very famous writer said to me, drugs saved my life. Yeah. Then they almost destroyed me. So mm-hmm. that, but, but initially they, the, the, the addictions again to whatever it is, whether it's drugs or behaviors, it comes along to soothe some kind of a deep pain and deep despair. And the source of that deep pain and deep despair is childhood trauma. Yeah. I would have been quite similar to James as well, you know, um I would have used substances at a really young age and I can really relate to what that your your friend that author said because when I look back at my own life in hindsight, if I didn't have those substances or drugs in my life to take me away from what was going on inside my head. Yes. And the fe- feelings and emotions that I was going through that I wasn't able to to handle. Yes. Um, I possibly, looking back now, I don't know what I, I like. The, what I could say, I possibly would have took my own life because that did come into my mind. But, um, or, or you might have turned to violence or something desperate, mm. you know. And and so, a lot of the people listening, if you're in jail, mm. you're being punished for your behaviors maybe to do with drugs, maybe to do with violence. Um, but what you're really being punished for is how you were wounded as a child and how you weren't given a help to to resolve that wound. I'm not yeah. saying that people aren't responsible, and, and we have to be, but but we have to understand for society to be responsible, it means that we have to understand why people behave the way they do, and particularly why they say turn to drugs. Nobody, I've never met anybody addicted to drugs who woke up out of a happy life one Saturday morning and said, hey, my ambition is to become a drug addict. It wasn't like that. It's that people came across the drug and all of a sudden they felt like they've never felt before in their lives uh, in a positive sense. You know, so we have to look at the sources of how they were deprived of that positivity earlier in life. And you know, doesn't it? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, doesn't it just uh, emphasize how pointless an exercise is of sending people uh, in addiction in and out of prison for short sentences for possession? Well, I worked in, I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and. in an area called the downtown east side, which is really North America's most concentrated area of drug use. I mean, you, if you walk down into those huge black blo- square blocks, you see people injecting and inhaling and selling. And, you know. and, uh, and those people, it's like a revolving door. They go in and out of jail. Now, we call the prison system the correctional system, but it doesn't correct anything. It's a punitive system. It's not a correctional system. We also talk about rehabilitation, but very few people 
ever get rehabilitated because the wound, the trauma that keeps driving their behaviors is never healed. It can be, but the neither the medical system nor the legal system understands the need to 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 heal the trauma. And so then it's a revolving door and, and people do detox in prison willy or nilly, but then they come out and within a couple of days they use it again. Very, that was my experience. And it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if you're going to lock people up, give them the rehabilitation treatment that they actually need. If you think you need to protect society from certain behaviors, well, that might be fair enough. But why be punitive about it? Why not help people really heal? And that, that, that can be done. It, it doesn't need to be done the way we do it. You can protect society, and you can also help people at the same time. And furthermore, um, it's a bit arbitrary, isn't it? Because uh, if you like in most countries, say possessing heroin or cocaine is illegal. But possessing alcohol or cigarettes is not illegal. And alcohol and cigarettes kill a lot more people than heroin or cocaine ever do. I'm not saying cocaine or heroin should be sold in the streets or in the corner stores, but I'm saying that, um, but I'm saying that there's a real, um, contradiction about the social attitude towards substances. Some substances that are far more lethal in the long term are permitted and profit on, profited off by respectable businessmen. Other drugs are, forbidden and 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 people are sent to jail for possessing them doesn't make any sense mm. do you think that ireland should follow canada in legalizing uh, cannabis how do you think that's playing out where you're where you're from well i think canada and and, and ireland should both follow portugal yeah. where they've actually decriminalized the personal possession of any drug Nobody goes to jail for possessing drugs in a small quantity for personal use. Mm. Crime has gone down, treatment levels have gone up, and there are few people in jail. And mm. there's no, there's been no increase in drug use. So it's not that Ireland should follow Canada. Certainly, it's nonsense to legalize cannabis. I mean, look, if using cannabis, if everybody in Canada, whoever used cannabis, was in jail. Half the population would be behind bars, and probably the same thing. And probably the same thing is true in Ireland. So that was a reasonable yeah. step forward, but not nearly far enough. Yeah, we have a we have a certain type of decriminalization in here, a very weak uh, form of it, where you get a caution if it's your first two offences. Mm-hmm. No, it, and it's at the discretion of the judge. But who does that really suit for the people that you worked with in um, in Vancouver, the people that I worked with in homeless services here in my city? If they got caught with drugs twice in the day, they don't then turn around and say, oh, I better stop using drugs now because I'm going to go to court the next time. They don't. But who does it do? It does suit. It suits maybe the politician's daughter who's in university and gets caught with some weed when they're out and they can yeah. avoid yeah. one or two convictions. So there's a class, the classism to all this as well, isn't there? Well, absolutely. And, and besides which, it's a nature of severe drug addiction that... You can't just give it up because there's some negative consequence. I mean, look, the people I worked with in Vancouver had HIV, they had hepatitis C, they had abscesses, 
diseases of all kinds. That wasn't enough to make them give it up. And not because they were stupid, but because they were so desperate and so dependent. And so there's two strikes and you're out kind of nonsense. It makes no, it, it, it makes no human or medical uh, sense whatsoever. And, and, and really what's missing is that the system is not trauma informed. And if you yeah. look at Ireland, I mean, not that I'm any kind of expert in Irish history, but for God's sakes, you know, uh, hundreds of years of colonialism, um, hunger, internecine strife, civil war. And then on top of that, the um, now well-identified abuse of children of mm. both, of all genders by the clergy. Uh, there's been a lot of trauma in your country. Mm. And so no wonder alcoholism and drug use and so on are, are, are prevalent as, as, you, as you'd expect them to be. And this is a traumatized society. And therefore, it needs to be trauma-informed. Yeah. Do you know, for um, all the things you spoke about in Irish history, the trauma, you could argue for Irish travellers, I don't know if you're aware, but Irish travellers are a, a separate ethnic group in Ireland, akin to the Aboriginals in your country, where they have mm-hmm. you know, very high rates of suicide, you know, um, well over-represented in the prison system. Can you explain a little bit about you know, how uh, that trauma has kind of passed on through generations and how state policy you know, in, impacts upon ethnic groups? Well, the... Um the example you gave, uh, James, of Canada's indigenous population is is a tragic and, um, I would say, from the point of view of Canadian society, a shameful one. Hmm. Because the British colonialists, um, and the French for that matter, when they came to North America, they, as colonialists always do, they decided that the way to dominate people, if you're going to take over their lands, um, appropriate their resources, and make them subservient, you have to rob them of their family structure, you have to rob them of their spiritual ways, you have to destroy their their uh, traditions, um, and you have to control them. And so there was the very gradual and very consistent breaking of treaties. They, they were, the British would sign one treaty after another with the natives and break one after the other but when the ink was barely dry on, on these treaties. Um, they um, continually encroached on their lands and resources. This, is, this continues. And then, um, to take the Indian out of the Indian, as they said, they would destroy the native family structure. Now, here's what I have to tell you, is that the way Aboriginal peoples parent their children is far superior than the way we parent children today in so-called civilized society. And this has been studied and researched. And just the way children are held and loved and they're not hit. And they're with nurturing adults all the time. And they're out there in nature. This is the way you parent if you want healthy human beings. Well, what did they do? 
They took kids away from their parents for over 100 years, forced them into these residential schools, and this is not unlike stuff, some of what happened in Ireland. Yeah. And where, in the name of Christian education, they were beaten and um, abused, many of them sexually abused. A lot of these kids died. We don't even know where they're buried. And generation after generation of native children were taken away from their families. So they never learned how to parent. So when they became parents themselves, they enacted the same trauma that was inflicted on them, on their kids. So it became multi-generational. So when you look at native communities today in Canada, and I, I'm often invited to work with them, high rates of suicide, as you said, substance use, glue sniffing, self-cutting, violence, sexual abuse of children, almost universal sexual exploitation of young girls. And this just continues and continues and continues. And the result is, in Canada, Native people make up 5% of our population. They make up 30% of the jail population. Sam, how? Yeah. You know, for some, I have a question there, Gabor. Um, it's just relating to somebody, you know, somebody that's in active addiction. And, right, for example, myself, you know, the drugs did so much for me and the alcohol. They kept me, they just took everything away. You know, I, I remember the moment in my own life as a really young child and there was a lot of trauma going on in my own family home, you know, there was a lot of mental health issues and, you know, there was a single parent, my mother bringing up uh, a few boys on her own. But, um, like, going on, I, I, I remembered a kind of a moment in my life where it was just, like, it was a block-off point. I just stopped, you know, I just lost all kind of faith in humanity and people and God, all these different things, yes. you know, but... As I went through my life, then, um, you know, the drugs and, um, and the alcohol, they would have blocked out all my thinking. The only thing I could think about was alcohol, drugs, gambling, and all the other addictions that were in my life, you know. But I met uh, my wife, you know, my kids at the time, and they were the only bit of stability that I had in my life. And I was given an ultimatum at probably the worst point in my life, you know, where a lot of people would probably stop but I couldn't stop because I wasn't able to stop number one and number two the drugs done so much for me they took me away from so much pain in my life you know but my point is I had something to fight for I had yeah a wife at the time she wasn't my wife she was my partner and I had two young kids does somebody really need something in their life to fight for like that, to really give up alcohol and drugs, which would maybe their partner in life, you know, or can they just, is, is it possible, or do they need a good social network around them to be able to get them through it, from your experience? Well, so first of all, although I've never had a substance addiction personally, I've half had addictive behaviors. And even though I didn't have the substance, I didn't have my cells crying out for the substance like Jews would have. My behavior addiction threatened my marriage. And like mm. probably you did, I lied to my wife. And, 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 and I ignored the needs of my kids. Yeah. That, that's how important the addiction can become. 
And um, to answer your question, we're by nature social creatures. In other words, we're biologically created to be in connection with one another. We evolved in small band hunter-gatherer groups. We didn't evolve as individuals living on a savanna or in a forest by ourselves. So we're, our psychology and our biology, including our brain biology, cries out for connection. As a matter of fact, the substances, like for example heroin, the opiates, they resemble chemicals in our own brain that give us a sense of connection. So, in, in, in a very real sense, the biology or the neurobiology, the brain biology of addiction is rooted in our deepest human needs. And when those needs for connection are not met in life, then we'll turn to addictive behaviors or substances. It also means that connections in a social network can give us a reason, a purpose, and a calling to move out of our addictions. But that drive really has to come from within. And, you know, if you look at the 12-step groups, and and I have certain issues with the 12-step groups, at the same time, I think the 12 steps are great. So, um, But what they do provide, don't they, is they give you a community. That's the whole yeah. point of them. Is that, look, here we are, and we're not each of us better than the other or worse than the other. We're just here facing the same dilemma. How can we support each other? And the group energy of a collective moving towards a common goal actually lifts up the individuals in that group to a higher level of energy. So whether it's personal relationships or a network that you can join or form, it's so much more um, easy and, and, and possible to do it through connection than to do it mm-hmm. in an isolated sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, my, you know what? I would say, yes, it's when you have something to live for, a relationship, mm-hmm. that's great. At the same time, there's also a deep reason within ourselves, which is that true relationship with ourselves. I mean, when you lost connection with yourself and you said that blackout moment, mm-hmm. you lost connection with yourself. And that's one of the impacts of trauma is that you lose connection with yourself. Now, when you recover, if, if, if you actually look at the word recovery, what does it mean? To recover means to find something. And what did you find when you recovered? You guys tell me, what did you find when you recovered? You, you find yourself. You You're find on the, the, the pathway to finding yourself. Exactly. And so that's worth you know? it too, even if there's no external relationship. Mm. Yeah. I think in recovery, like in, in addiction, when I didn't have the drugs, it was that low self-esteem, insecurity. I think what I recovered in recovery, what I found was self-acceptance and accepting yourself for who you are, flaws and all, and just being able to kind of move forward with that. I right. think what you spoke about in terms of the community being like, um, in terms of the, the 12 step communities, the, the fellowship and the, the strength of that. And where I work in Cool Mine Addiction Services in Cork here, we work from a, therape- a therapeutic community <laughs> model. And I see that working, you know, just yeah. to, um, that, you know, just to when people get around each other and kind of help each other along is great. Like, you know, a lot of our followers would be, um, people not in addiction, but may have loved ones in addiction. 
have you I'm sure over the years you've had family members come to you asking you how what can they do and we get a lot of a lot of family members coming to us or oh, how do I help young Timmy or young James is going down the wrong path what can I do what can I do have you any advice for family members <clears throat> I do um you know I have advice for everybody that's just what I do. <laughs> that's why you're here <laughs> <laughs> um, not that everybody wants it all the time but I have it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So um, we just put it out there anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, particularly my own family. Let me put it that way. But uh, <laughs> um, so I've written a book in the realm of hungry ghosts, close encounters with addiction, which has been published in the UK at least, um, not to mention North America. And there's a whole chapter on families and caregivers. So let let me summarize what I say in that chapter. And here's what I would say. It's very painful, it's very difficult, it's very frustrating and heartbreaking to be close to somebody who's addicted and whose path you'd like to influence for the better, but you find yourself powerless to do so. So how can you approach it? There's three ways. Two of them are sane, one of them is insane. Okay? This, one of the sane ways is to say to the addicted person, look, um, I'm not trying to change you. I know that right now, and going back to my question, not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. I know that right now, something is driving you to pursue these addictive behaviors. And I imagine that something inside you is some kind of pain. And I understand and I don't judge you, but it's too painful for me to be around. I don't know how to handle my feelings that come up for me when I see you. I'm not doing this to punish you. I love you. I want to be here for you. But right now I can't be around you because I don't know how to handle the emotions that I get around you. It's not your fault. And you're not doing it to me. But I, I'm too stressed around it. So that, that's legitimate. Okay. The second sane thing to do is to say, right now, you're doing what you're doing, you're addictive, you're gambling, or you're pornography, or you're drugs, or you're drinking, or whatever you're doing, and I know that you must have some powerful drive inside you to compel you to do that, and I don't know if I understand it, but I know you must be in pain, and this is a way of soothing the pain, and I accept that, and you don't need to be any different for me to love you and be around you. I can I can be it. I can be with it. I won't put up with being manipulated or lied to or stolen from. But I don't need to interfere in your life. It's your life, not mine. And I can be around you. And I'm here for you. That's the second sane way. The insane way is to be in that person's life and try and change them. <clears throat> to try and stop them, cajole them, threaten them bribe them, beg them uh, to be different. Because that means that you're dependent on them to be different so you can feel better. That makes you a codependent. And that means you've got your own problems. And here's the thing. Here's you guys. Let's try something, okay? Both put your hands up just the way I'm doing it right now. Put your hand, left hand against your right hand. Now push with your right hand against the left hand. Push as hard as you can. Push, push, push. What does the left hand do? Strength. Push against. <laughs> push is right back. And when we push on people to be different, 
even if we're trying to impel them in the right direction, they're going to push back. All you're going to get back is resistance. And everybody listening to me here has already experienced mm. that. So don't do it. Don't create more. And, and, don't create more resistance. Invite them, yeah. or tell them you can't handle it. But don't try and force, cajole, convince, try to influence that other person to be different. Accept them exactly where they're at. Hmm. Now, there's one more thing I would say to families. Sometimes you hear about these interventions where everybody gets together and tell the addict how difficult it is for them and how much it hurts them and please be different and here's a program and, you know, nonsense. Hardly ever works. Might sometimes, but hardly ever. The studies are not very promising. Here's a kind of intervention that I think would make sense. The family says to the addicted one, you know, we get that you're carrying a lot of pain. And you need to do this behavior to soothe that pain. But we also know that that pain didn't start with you. It happened in your family of origin, which is to say we all contributed to it. Not that we meant to, but somehow we did. To speak personally, and uh, maybe you might agree with this, I mean, before you healed or recovered, there's no way you wouldn't have passed on some of your trauma onto your kids. And, and I know that I passed on my trauma to my kids. So trauma mm -hmm. is always multi-generational. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't begin with any one particular person. Nobody should be blamed for it. But at the same time, everybody has to take responsibility for it. So what if the family said, you know, we get that this trauma is multi-generational. It's been in this family system for decades or generations. You happen to be one of the sensitive ones who absorbed a lot of that, and your addiction represents that pain that you absorbed from your environment. It's not our fault, it's not your fault, but we're all responsible. So how about if we all heal together, and we invite you to join in that healing process, but we're going to undertake that healing journey, whether or not you're ready to join us or not, we invite you to. Now that's the kind of intervention that I love to see happen. You hardly ever do see it, but because it's so painful for families to acknowledge, that the source of the addiction individual actually came out of the family, multi-generational system, and the whole culture. But it did. So we might as well face it. We might as well own up to it, take responsibility. And what if as a society, what if Irish society or Canadian society actually said, you know, you people in jail and you people caught in the throes of addiction are actually manifesting the multi-generational, historical, multi-family trauma that's endemic in our culture. And we're not going to blame you for it. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The freedom and the sigh of relief that so many people would experience. Mm. How do you get that amount of, how do you put that amount of awareness within a society, you know, because like, you just look at society at the moment. Everybody's full of fear over all this COVID stuff and all, whatever. But even before that, people were just full of fear, full of fear of not accomplishment, accomplishing enough in their life, not not owning their own house and all these different things. Like, you know, how how do we actually sit people down and explain to them, if you do this, this may affect your kids growing up. They might become an addict or... They might become very violent or they will have no social skills or all these things. You know, it's just, it's just, 
I don't know, it's just a, a massive question that we have to ask ourselves. How do we actually get this awareness out there so people can really understand that their actions are really something that will follow them down the line with their own kids? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, it's... It, it, it's, it's a huge um, question that you're raising. I'm just writing a book, a new book, which will be published a year from now, next April. Um, it'll be called The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health and in the Insane Culture. And the culture is insane because it doesn't meet human needs. Like the fear that you talked about, of not accomplishing enough and so on, it's endemic. And when people are in a state of fear, they can't think rationally. And this society is insane because it puts people in a state of fear. So when you look at human needs, I just the chapter I'm just writing, I, I made this little list of what human needs are, genuine human needs. They're for a sense of belonging and connectedness. They're for a sense of autonomy or controlling one's life. A sense of mastery or competence that I can do something. Not in comparison with others, but just something that I can feel good about. Genuine self-esteem, which doesn't depend on what others think of me, but it's that self-acceptance that you guys talked about, that I can accept myself and my flaws, that I'm not worthwhile because I can do this, that, or the other. I'm worthwhile whether or not I can do this, that, or the other. Trust that I have the personal and social resources to get through life and a sense of purpose and meaning and transcendence, that I belong to something greater, just a little me egoic mind of mine. Mm -hmm. These are genuine human needs. This society, gauge for yourself how well it meets those human needs. It doesn't meet them, it tramples on them. No wonder so many people are in uh, trouble. How do we get there? Well, we get there because you guys have this podcast, yeah. and because you're willing okay. to share your experience and your hard-earned wisdom, and because you're not afraid to talk about your own dysfunctions and your own traumas, and because I'm not afraid to talk about mine, because we use whatever platform I have gained in life and whatever platform you have achieved to educate and to inform and to invite others. It's a process. So I don't have any magic snapping yeah. with fingers formula. We just have to keep this conversation going. And you know, yeah. there's some good news. I'm sure that in Ireland, as it is in North America, this conversation has got far more listening than it would have had 10 years ago. In other words, yeah. a lot more people can nod their heads and say, yeah, I get what they're talking about. Um, and some of the best-selling books in North America, you know, are on trauma. So, and, and my books have been published in nearly 30 languages. So, you know, and, and by the way, without trying to sell you anything, those of you that have not read my books and you don't need to, um, well, you should, but... <laughs> you definitely should. Yeah, definitely but, should. but you don't yeah. need to. But, but here's what you can do. You can go on YouTube, if that's available to you, and just put in my name, and you'll see dozens of talks, totally free, and all these mm -hmm. subjects, and you can watch them, and go get a lot of information that way. And I'm not the only one talking about these things. There's others. So that there's a lot of way to get information these days. And so what I'm saying is, how do you do it? By focusing on it, by talking about it. Um... I should actually tell you guys, uh, in a month, a film will come out, a documentary about my work. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma. And if you guys don't have the link, you can um, contact my manager, who you're in contact with, Stephanie, and she'll send you the link, the, a trailer, and you can sign up. And that whole week that this film is being shown online, 
I'll be in conversation with some leading trauma experts, and that's available to anybody who's got YouTube access. Yeah, excellent. We'll we'll definitely share that. Yeah, and I think what you're saying about a growing awareness and interest in all things related to trauma. Um, is definitely uh, the mm-hmm. case where we're from. You know, when you you were over in my city a couple of years ago, my U- university college, Cork, you did a two day conference around the same the same time. Bessel van der Kolk was in another part of the city, and that was sold out as well. So there was huge interest in this, which is the start of the awareness what Timmy was talking about. Mm-hmm. But if I can just change direction a small bit, Gabor. I have um, a family member who has ulcerative colitis Mm -hmm. and I have a friend who, another couple of friends that have lupus and other autoimmune diseases uh, conditions. Can you explain to us how um, trauma uh, relates to those chronic illnesses? Sure. Before I do, you mentioned Bessel. His book, The Body Keeps the Score, is the number three best-selling books in the New York Times this week. Really? Yes, and, and it's been on the mm-hmm. best-selling books for, for, for months. So, I mean, people mm-hmm. are really getting it now, <clears throat> the message. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, autoimmune disease, like ulcerative colitis and, and lupus and the whole range. There are two major ways that trauma potentiates those diseases. And in my, in my experience, everybody with autoimmune disease suffered trauma in childhood. Everybody. Not that the doctors will tell you that, because despite all the research literature showing the links, most physicians are um, not aware of the links. But early childhood trauma actually <clears throat> interferes with how genes are expressed, and they promote the activation of inflammatory genes. And they also cause other changes in the body that I'm not going to go into in detail. But the point is, People traumatize to more inflammation in their bodies, so they're more likely to get inflammatory diseases. Number one. Number two, on a, again, on a physiological level, trauma um, creates a lot of physiological stress, which exhausts the body's own stress mechanisms. Now, how do we treat these conditions? Colitis and lupus, you know how we treat them? With stress hormones. Because their own body's stress hormones get depleted from overactivation. And that's the funny thing about doctors, like in my own training as a physician. We treat everything with stress hormones, but never ask ourselves, gosh, does this condition may have something to do with stress? Like cortisol is a stress hormone. And that's what everybody gets with lupus and colitis and rheumatoid arthritis and a whole range of conditions. So that's the second pathway. The third pathway is the early trauma creates certain personality patterns. Now, people with autoimmune disease, and I can tell you, I don't know your relatives or friends with lupus or colitis, but I can tell you about their personalities. They have no idea how to experience healthy anger. They repress their anger. They have no idea how to take care of their own needs. They tend to take care of the emotional needs of others ahead of their own. They're driven by duty and responsibility rather than needs of the self. So these personality patterns... And I talk about this in my book, When the Body Says No. Because they don't know how to say no. So the body says no in the form of illness. It also follows that we learn, when they learn how to say no, the body doesn't have to keep saying it. So I've known people, lots of people with autoimmune disease who got better once they changed their relationship to themselves. Problem is, when you go to the average physician trained like me in the Western medical model, 
you can go in there with your inflammation in your intestines or in your skin or in your lungs or in your connective tissues. And nobody's going to ask you what happened to you as a child. Nobody's going to ask you how do you feel about yourself. Nobody's going to ask you uh, how much stress is there in your life. Um, they're not going to ask you these questions, but they're pertinent. They're pertinent to who develops illness and who doesn't. So the connection is both physiological and psychological in the sense that certain personality patterns are promoted by trauma, and those patterns create more stress as you go along. And that stress then leads to the immune system turning against yourself. So there's lots of ways in which trauma. Now, um, people who are Canadian studies show that... Um, uh, men who were sexually abused as children had 50% increase in the risk of cancer. This is regardless of whether or not they smoked or drank. And um, again, uh, people who are traumatized, lots of studies have shown they're at elevated risk for mental health conditions, autoimmune disease, uh, ADHD, depression, malignancy, and so on, for perfectly straightforward reasons. Mm. You know, when you were over in Cork Air, Gabor, you spoke about, you gave examples of obituaries in newspapers, Yeah. where, for example, and just an example, um, say my obituary, touch would have a few years left, but just say my obituary, James was a good man. He always kept mm-hmm. his head down, never missed a day's work. Always, he would never say no to help others. And then you turn around and you says, James never looked after himself. Yeah. Can you explain to us the importance of self-care, especially for those in the helping professions? Well, <clears throat> a lot of people that go into the helping professions, they do it for two sets of reasons. One set of reasons is because they're genuinely empathic, compassionate people who want to help humanity. Good. But there's also a drive to be important. Mm-hmm. And that drive to be important, if it depends on something external, is never satisfied. So one of my addictions was to work. Now, if you're a workaholic doctor, you know what happens? The world loves you. You make more money and you get all this accolades and all this admiration. Oh, he's always available. He's, you know, he's so selfless and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you're stressing yourself like crazy because you don't know how to say no. And and your family is suffering. And I have back pain and I have depression. I'm talking about myself. I don't even know why. Why do I have back pain? Because I'm carrying too much on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Why do I have depression? Because I'm pushing myself down. I'm pushing down my own needs. So self-care, healthcare workers are prone to that. So the thing is, Yes, we need to care for others. That's where our commitment and our calling is. But that others have to include ourselves as well. We can't divide into two sets of people. Everybody else who deserves help and care and the one person, myself, who doesn't. That's a sure way to burn out. And so self-care, that's one reason why self-care is important. But the other reason is that everybody who comes to you for help in the healthcare world, pretty much everybody, not everybody, the vast majority of people have been traumatized, stressed people. If you really want to be able to help them, 
deal with your own stress. So you're coming from a grounded, calm, peaceful place. That's going to make all the difference to your capacity to help these others. So even if you want to do your job better, yeah, you have to say no sometimes to the job and yes to yourself, and that means you'll do a better job in what you do. Can I just bring you back a little bit there? We spoke about um, we spoke about the twelve steps. I know now we're going away from what we're talking about now, but it's just related to um, doing the program of the twelve steps, Gabor. Right? Um, I I went through the steps twice: once in prison and once when I came out. You know. Yes. But and I also seen a psychologist in the prison and a psychotherapist outside and I done loads and loads of work on myself and I started to learn about why I felt the way I did about myself, why I felt bad, no good, worthless and all these different things. But I always still felt the same. I still had that feeling of worthlessness within me, you know. Yeah. But what I done then was uh, I was I, I meditated a lot, mm. an awful lot, and the meditation really I was able to free that trapped energy that was caught within me. You know, down in my lower centers. You know, my first and second center just just really trapped in the body. Mm. Now it's still there. You know, it's still there. Like I. I carry an awful lot of shame um, within within me, and that's hereditary. Is from passed on from my mother, who carried it when in her own life, you know. Um, but you know, what are your thoughts on the route of meditation for really kind of helping people to free up that pain that psychology working with psychologists and psychotherapists therapists doesn't really do because that's 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 what happened for me i learned so much from the psychologist and the psychotherapist but i still didn't feel better about me as myself you know um but the meditation really freed that up a little bit for me what are your thoughts on meditation around all that okay well first of all um you said the feeling of worthlessness Mm -hmm. That's not a feeling. Okay. It's a belief. Yeah. Okay. It's a belief. And itself, it's a trauma response. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, in my new book, I talk about this. It's a bit difficult to explain, but let me try. That belief that you're worthless actually is your friend i'm going to say and you say how the heck can that be my friend it blights my life think about it this way you're the child growing up under the circumstances that you're growing up on i don't know what happened but there's going to be dysfunction distress your parents are completely unable to meet your needs for acceptance and belonging and 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 uh, valuation now, as a child you have two alternatives you can believe that your parents are bad or incompetent and that the world is just a dangerous awful place mm-hmm. and you're totally alone in the universe that's one you can believe that or you can believe that i'm worthless and maybe if i work hard enough 
I can earn my right to exist. Now, which, which is safer for the child to, to believe? Yeah. Which is? Second one. Second one. For me, yeah. That's exactly it. So that, that mm -hmm. sense of worthlessness saved your bacon. It saved your life. Yeah. So first of all, you shouldn't see it as an enemy. It was your friend. Mm -hmm. Problem is, it's a stupid friend. When I say stupid mm -hmm. friend, it doesn't learn. Mm -hmm. It doesn't know that it's no longer needed. And that's the, that's the problem with these trauma-induced beliefs is that they save our lives or they save our sanity as children, but then become millstones around our neck later on. So first of all, I'm suggesting to you that when you notice that sense of worthlessness, make friends with it. Mm. Say to it, hello again. I see you. Thank you. You were very helpful to me when I was five years old. I don't need your services anymore. But I don't need mm. you to go away. I'll just be with you. Now, meditation can help you. First of all, do you get what I mean? I understand a million percent. Okay, yeah. great. Then in meditation, yeah. which gives you some distance from the busy mind, when you notice that worthlessness coming up, just notice it. Neither mm -hmm. reject it nor believe it. Oh, there it is again. So meditation mm -hmm. gives you this distance from the contents of your mind. So it's a very powerful technique for those that yeah. can do it. Yeah, it takes some time, doesn't it? I'm, I'm the world's... <laughs> you know, I, in one of my books, I talk about how I have a profound relationship with meditation. I think about it every day, you know. But actually trying to get me to do it. <laughs> I can relate with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but you know what? Study after study shows what a beneficial modality is. And, 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 and the benefit is actually in strengthening in your capacity strengthening the capacity of your brain to be aware of things without being identified with them mm, yeah. so that belief of worthlessness now there's a feeling that comes along with the belief in worthlessness that feeling is shame yeah that's that's you know what it's exactly it's, it's the shame yeah it is the shame and i'm really starting to work on that myself a little bit more and i think you you brought it up earlier there about Ireland as as a country. There is so we're carrying so much shame as a country in a to in a whole. You know, shame because of all the stuff that would have happened in the past. Well, not only that, you know, I mean, interrupt. It's not only that. Look, I read uh, yeah. James Joyce's uh, portrait of a young man as an artist, and yeah. he talks about as a school. You know, the the chief character is as a schoolboy goes to church. And he listens to the sermon, which is about the sin inherent in the human soul and about how you're going to go to hell. And he talks about eternity. And the priest in, in the book talks about eternity. If you imagine the earth as a big metal ball and every million years a dove comes and gently touches the earth with his wings as he flies by. Then eventually, with his wing, he would wear enough, he would wear the earth away over billions and billions and billions of years. But, says the priest, hell will never be worn away. It's much more eternal than that. Now, this is the kind of stuff that kids are brought up in. This is the kind of fear that they're brought up with. They're, yeah. they're made to feel in so many religions, which at their core uh, bring a message of love and peace, in their practice, 
in an institutionalized form, inflict shame on people. Mm. And shame, if you want to control people, you know what you do? You make them feel ashamed. Yeah. So not only is the problem of trauma, there's also the culturally induced shame. It's a big one. Uh, it's a huge one to overcome. Uh, yeah. By the way, I don't, you know, I'm Jewish, and uh, there's, a joke, yeah. there's a joke about, you know what Jewish Alzheimer's is? Jewish Alzheimer's disease? You forget everything but the guilt, you know? <laughs> and, and I would say the yeah. same thing of Catholic Alzheimer's, you know? You forget, everything, yeah. you forget everything but the shame and the guilt. No, I don't want to make of a serious illness, but but this idea that guilt and shame are inflicted on young kids for for reasons that have nothing to do with their yeah. needs or their real lives, you know. Yeah, as a way of control. Um, I, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, we won't keep you much longer. But I've I've one more question, and then I leave Timmy finish up with a question. But I'm interested in drug policies. You know, that was my my thesis um, uh, topic. Um, in my experience of working with people in homelessness, and you would have had similar experience, to, uh, some people may never get recovery, you know, and some people, they'll maybe reducing the uses is about as good as it'll get. In England recently, in Middlesbrough, I think it was, uh, in the northwest of England, they trialed a heroin-assisted treatment where the GP prescribed um, uh, heroin uh, to those that all other forms of treatment have not worked. And it's seen that person reduced crime, um, no transmission of blood-borne affections, no overdoses. They were able to get employment and just uh, erase their quality of life. It's not abstinence, but it's still a lot better than where they were. And yeah. it's a cost-effective approach. Would you be an advocate of that as, as a physician and as somebody who's worked in homeless services as well? Well, here's the frustrating thing, is that they used to do this in England decades ago. Yeah. With, with the same results. And then they kind of stopped it, or they, they cut down on it. This has been done in Switzerland, in Holland, in Canada, in Vancouver. I worked at such a facility. The results are overwhelmingly and uniformly positive in terms of overdose prevention, disease transmission prevention, employability, family life, self-esteem. It's not a scientific issue. The science has been resolved a long time ago. It's a political issue. It's a drug policy issue, as you say. So it, it, it's all a question of what is the intent of drug policy. If the intent of drug policy is to reduce illness, to rehabilit rehabilitate people, and, and by the way, even when you say people, some people won't give up their addiction, that's partly because the system is not in place to help them heal. What if there was a whole system to help them heal? A lot more people would give up their addictions, I believe. So it's not a, just because they're addicted, it's because they don't get the help they need. But even assuming that some people can't give up their addictions no matter what, well, then what you're suggesting has been over and over again, overwhelmingly, and without any contradiction, proven to be beneficial. So if we're not doing it, it's not for lack of proof. It's, it's out of prejudice and, and, and a kind of perverse, punitive, um, uninformed attitude. Um, what can you say about it? It, it? it makes no sense. And, you know, it, I'm sure it is frustrating for you, just as it is for me, knowing that there's so much we can do, so much that has been proven to work, and we're just not doing it. And the politicians, you know, uh, 
I'll, maybe I'll finish on this note. I was once um, invited to speak to a subcommittee of the Canadian Senate on drug policy. So I flew to Ottawa and these senators listened and I noticed with some of them, what I was saying wasn't going in one ear and out the other. It wasn't even going in one ear. They just didn't know how to, re- you know, I was giving them all this information on trauma, addiction and so on, everything. You know. And finally I said to them, look, senators, <laughs> as a physician, you expect me to practice evidence-based medicine. How about you start practicing evidence-based politics? How about if politicians going to enact drug laws and drug policies, they look at the evidence first? Well, I like to live to the sea today when that happens universally. Yeah, it's very disheartening as a researcher to produce some evidence at that the government will continually ignore the source, you know, their own ideologies and biases. You know, it's very frustrating. I'm sure it's frustrating for you as a physician with all your experience, expertise and knowledge to be, you know, have a policy that goes against everything that you know and believe to be true, you know. So um, I I let Timmy have the last question. Okay, I'm sorry, anyway, you, you can both probably hear the dog barking there for the last five minutes, so, no. No, 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 I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, my last, uh, this is question really would be um, for, for anybody that's listening that's caught up in addiction as is at, at the present, you know, um, what would be the best bit of advice that you could possibly give somebody from your own experience working with, with people in addiction and, and recovery and stuff? For what would be the best bit of advice you possibly give him, Gabor? You know, I know now it's just probably a mad question. Like, where some people are really, really struggling, and and they watch our podcast for some form of inspiration. Um, so if there's anything that you could really add to that, okay. Well, what I would say to them is, there's a part of you that actually cares about you. There's a part of you believes that you can heal. And a part there's a part of you that des- believes and des- and de- believes that you deserve to heal. And if none of that was true, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. You wouldn't be listening to this inspiration. In other words, the guidance is inside you. So pay attention to that guidance. The drugs have silenced that voice. Your trauma have attenuated that voice, weakened it. But it's in you, and it's the real you. That's what you're going to recover. So there's lots of ways to recover. I'm not here to recommend modalities. Again, I do recommend my talks on addiction on YouTube or my book on addiction Mm -hmm. as some support for you. But the real support, the real guidance is within yourself. And reach out to others. Don't try to do it on your own. That's the best advice I can give. Thank you very much. That That was great. Yeah, no, look, um, up, yeah, look, it's, it's brought us to a natural end. We won't keep you much longer. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. It's been a real honour for myself and Timmy, you know, um, and I'm sure the people watching will have taken a lot from it. You know, you make complex ideas um, very accessible for people, you know, so it's much appreciated. We'll link all your books and your YouTube talks in the description of the video. Um, and I really look forward to the, the book coming out and the documentary you spoke about as well. And please, God, when we return to normal, it will be an honor to meet you in person someday. But until then, thank you very much. Stay safe and stay healthy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.